0: We have already seen that Revelation is a book of sevens, which is generally understood um, to be the number of completion. And so we've read about seven churches and seven lampstands and seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. And most importantly, we discover the book is divided into several, seven, uh, seven parallel sections each section repeatedly spanning essentially the same ground from a different perspective. What's presented in this book then is a description of the reoccurring experience of the Church of Christ from the time of uh, his first coming to the second, shown to us in seven parallel cycles, uh, all of them covering something of the same ground and yet moving or progressing Toward the end, the final completion of God's saving purposes, depict, depicted most graphically in chapters 21 and 22. Now, last Lord's Day evening, we completed the first cycle, <clears throat> the opening of the seven seals. Now we come to chapter 8 and verse 2 through chapter 11, where we have the sounding of the seven trumpets. Um, And, uh, that's the second cycle of judgment, uh, uh, ending once more, as did the first cycle, with the return of Christ represented with the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Only in this cycle, you'll see the judgment slightly intensified, the intensification which will continue throughout the seven cycles. Now, we have a lot of reading this evening. Um, But I am committed to presenting this book to you as sort of a brief overview uh, rather than trying to uh, do it in any sort of depth, which would take a long time and perhaps with diminishing returns. So uh, please, um, if I can say that from scripture, I mean, God would bless it, I'm sure, but um, (laughs) you know what I mean. (laughs) There are some portions of scripture that just are... You, you need more time with and um, and we don't have that sort of time. So we'll begin with chapter eight, beginning with verse two, and I will attempt to read through uh, the eleventh chapter. Follow along uh, as this is um, uh, God's word. Then I saw the seventh a- the seven angels, "...who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel." Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of living creatures on the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet. And a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I saw an eagle crying with a loud voice as he flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast. Of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star from the heavens. uh, Fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the shaft. And from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And then their torment was like and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And those days, in those days people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold and their faces were human faces and their hair like a woman's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails." They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails were like scorpions, like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of their work of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Then I saw another mighty angel, chapter 10, verse 1. Another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders uh, thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel, whom I was, uh, <coughs> uh, whom I saw standing um, on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but in the days of the trumpet, called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. CHAPTER eleven for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the years of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the people and the tribes and languages and nations will gaze on at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on all of those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in an earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for the destroying, the destroyers of the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within the temple and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. Amen. Well, um, everything is before you um, this evening in one big shot. (laughs) A lot of material. Um, First, there is this uh, under God's judgment and the first four trumpets, we see this um, sort of introductory picture of the reference, the reminder of prayer um, verse uh, 8, um, or, or excuse me, uh, the first verse of uh, Sunan, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and we given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So this incense and prayer of the saints is also referenced In a number of other places, even in chapter 5, verse 8, you may recall that. It represents, of course, the prayers of God's people, crying out in persecution, crying out under the weary tribulations of this life, calling out together with the saints and the martyrs of God, as we read in chapter 6. Your prayers and my prayers are offered together with the prayers of God's people of every age and God hears them every one. It's a good place to start this description of the persecution of the church with this reminder of prayer. Well then, first comes the first trumpet uh, with hail and fire mixed with blood thrown down or hurled upon the earth. Uh, It reminds us of some of the plagues uh, that we read about being visited upon Egypt and uh, the oppression uh, who are oppressing the Israelites, fire and hail cast down upon Egypt. It reminds us, I think, also of what we would call natural disasters, such as we just heard of in Japan, volcanic explosions. Uh, Hail, terrible ice storms, tornadoes, hurricanes, torrential rains, uh, lava flows, mudslides, destructive flooding, what the insurance companies piously call acts of God. Um, The the second trumpet uh, unleashes more, um, the disasters upon the sea in this case, uh, perhaps symbolizing maritime calamities. The calamities of the sea: terrible hurricanes, rogue waves, icebergs, collisions, pirates, uh, people lost in drowning, uh, ships lost at sea with sailors and fishermen and soldiers and travelers. Uh, in, in one sense, uh, they are the these are the common commonplace hazards of the sea that we face in this sin blasted world. The third trumpet. Uh, brings this great star like a blazing torch which turns the inland waters foul, polluted, unfit to drink. There's no water to drink. It's, it's a judgment that might remind us of the calamity that we have repeatedly brought upon ourselves, a men poisoning one another by their own greed and abuse of the environment with agricultural and industrial waste and careless pollution of the good earth over which God has called us to be uh, wise lords, Genesis 1. Finally, the fourth trumpet uh, touches the calamities of heaven. Uh, In the plagues of Exodus, God brings darkness um, from the heavens upon uh, the Egyptians. And in the same way here, we read of uh, how God withholds his light Uh, He withholds his light from those who continue in their rebellion against him. Men who are spiritually blind, loving the darkness rather than the light of Christ. Taken all of together, um, I'm at point B. um, Taken together, we we, um, have the disasters of land and sea and inland waters and heavens. In other words, everywhere. There is no place that God cannot touch and does not touch. There is no safe place from the hand of the Lord. So, these four trumpets go together. They are a unit and they're to be thought of, I think, in the same manner as the seven seals, as the first of the seven seals, as representative of the temporal judgments of God, repeatedly brought upon the world for justice sake and especially to get our attention throughout our lives. To get our attention. Um, uh, we make life hard and God makes life hard because our hearts are so hard. And that's what these trumpets are really all about. To turn uh, God, the men's hearts uh, toward God. Uh, these are not uh, single one time events, but they they represent uh, calamities they They represent things that that occur um, over and over and over through the ages um, uh, in these last days between the first and second coming. Uh, all of these may be regarded as part of of the Genesis curse, uh, the purpose of which is what to humble us and to call us to repentance. And to faith. Now, some will harden their hearts like Pharaoh and prove themselves to be hopelessly wicked and unregenerate. And others will be softened and turned from their pride and their anger and their unbelief and hard experiences, life that God sovereignly brings upon us. And they'll come to the Lord uh, humbly. I see this as a pastor, and your elders see this. How often uh, the calamities of life uh, God brings upon us uh, strengthens and draws some closer to one another and closer to him while driving others farther and farther away from the cross and away from the church and away from the possibility of salvation. The Christian is taken to the cross by his sufferings. He's cast upon the Lord as Savior. He says, who is there in heaven but but You. He's reminded that the bitterest waters of life can be made sweet uh, through the cross. He's reminded the Christian that Christ is our light and our salvation and a very present help in trouble. While well, the unbeliever is simply discouraged and hardened in his, his attitude toward God or fate as he calls it. You've noticed that in each of these judgments, these calamities are limited to a third, a third of the grass, a third of the water, ship, sea. um, a number not to be taken as an exact mathematical manner, as as so much as to signify that the disasters in all of these cases will be great and terrible, but not complete, not touching everyone everywhere. God is merciful. God is not wanting that men should perish outside of faith. National disasters uh, that have touched the United States, for example, hurricanes and fires, have been very limited and relative, relatively manageable. We don't, we don't see that stuff about those mudslides out here in the East. We don't have those earthquake problems. We have our own issues, but and we should be thankful for this. We, we deserve much worse. Um, For these first four trumpets um, do not depict the final judgment. They're not depicting the last days, but only those uh, events common to the last days, a plural expression in the Bible used to speak of those days between the time of the first and second coming, during which God is gathering his people to himself and using, using some of these things along with his love, along with his grace, to woo us to himself. The possibility of repentance and salvation is still possible, but it will not always be possible, as we'll see. Which brings me to Roman numeral two, the last days and the witness of the church. The woes... Uh, which follows, uh, in the opening of chapter nine, the sounding of the sixth and fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets is ominously, uh, introduced to this eagle flying to the air crying out, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth and the blast of the other trumpets that the angels are about to blow. And indeed, what uh, follows certainly has more of what I suppose I might call a real end times cast to it. Um, It seems clear from this book um, that in the future, that in periods of time immediately preceding the second coming, the judgments of God against the world will intensify. It reminds us um, of the sixth seal that we saw back in chapter 6, verses 12 and following, which very clearly, you remember, described events surrounding the the second coming of the Lord. Um, And likewise, the sounding of the fifth trumpet sets in motion this horrific army of locusts energized by demonic powers, the star that's fallen, an obvious reference to the fallen Satan who's given the key to the abyss, a pit out of which flies these fantastical demonic locusts who for five months torment men terribly. But God is in control. He gives the key to Satan. He serves his own purposes. Satan is always and ever the tool of of the hand of God. Um, but notice here God begins to make a distinction between, as he did in the latter plagues, you may recall, in the plagues of Egypt, the latter plagues he made a distinction between the Egyptians and Pharaoh. and and the people of Israel. And so here, he begins to make this distinction between the righteous and the wicked, those who confess Christ, and those who will not. Verse 9, chapter 9, verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. We saw in chapter 7 that this seal is the mark of conversion. Conversion. It's the Holy Spirit that God sets upon people to set them apart as those who belong to him, for whom Christ died. If you're a saved man or woman or a young person, you are possessed by the Holy Spirit uh, with whom you were sealed, which is a mark of your conversion. Uh, With the fifth fifth and sixth uh, trumpet, we have a pretty clear, clear picture then, a war, not a specific war or a specific conflict, but war in general, present, past, and future. And also the last frightful war towards the very end of the age before the return of our Lord. These horses are described in the text, especially in chapter 9, 7 to 11, and they're they're obviously not ordinary horses, um, and, and ought not to be thought of as such, but taken, I believe, as symbols of the terrible engines of modern warfare, ever more gruesome and destructive with every passing year. You know, stones give way to swords, and then rifles, and then automatic weapons, and then atom bombs, and then thermo, uh, nuclear bombs, and then hideous biological weapons. Um, A slight delay follows the beginning of of chapter 10 in which we're put on notice that the following will will be the last and worst. Indeed, it's the final judgment that um, is introduced uh, in the last trumpet, the very end of the age. Uh, A mighty angel described in almost messianic terms announces, swears with finality, this final judgment uh will, there will be no more delays no more delays god has delayed judgment long enough um and as we know um and uh, and, and 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 the old testament prophets when you read them you it seems evident that they they um, expected judgment to come uh very quickly and uh, john the baptist for example the last old testament prophet was quite certain that with jesus would come not only would he baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit? But he, he was going to—it was going to be all over. He was going to do it all in one fell swoop, and uh, he, he was wrong. <laughs> uh, but uh, he, he saw the—he saw the facts. He just didn't get the order and the timing right. And in fact, um, it appears that some of the apostles themselves initially expected the Lord's return in their own lifetime. Uh, many people today wonder at the delay of the Lord and seeming impotence of Christ the Messiah, how wrong they are. It's God's mercy. It's God's forbearance that has caused him to delay his coming until we all have that chance, until the full number of God's people for whom Christ died has been brought to saving faith. Thank the Lord for that, brothers and sisters. Is there not some unsaved loved one in your life Are any of you unsaved? There's still time, as long as God tarries. Now, this scroll, sweet to taste but sour uh, to the stomach, represents the, the bittersweet nature of the gospel. It's given to John and he's instructed to prophesy, he's instructed to bear witness to many people, to nations and kings, as he has so done in this book. Um, and uh, the very word of God is like this, isn't it? it it's, it's precious sweet to those who receive it in faith. But, but when we receive it, it almost sometimes in, inevitably follows to have a certain bitter disappointment to it as well. We, as we witness the rejection of Christ by loved ones. We came to faith, but someone else would not. Um, we we struggle. We, there's a bitterness as we struggle with our own indwelling sin, and we experience conflicts and persecutions that result from our confession of Christ, together with Christians throughout the ages. John is also instructed, in chapter one, you notice to measure the temple. The temple is a picture of the true church of Christ. The careful measurement. Uh, reminding us again that God knows and cares for his people. God numbers us and God measures his church. Christ knows the measure of his people and his precious church. You notice, however, that the outside court is not measured, referring, I think, to false churches and nominal in name only Christians who are self-deceived. And what? will not have the protection from uh, from God which they vainly expect. On the last day, there will be many who will be shut out of heaven crying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? To whom Jesus will say, I never knew you. Well then, point C comes these two witnesses. And who are the two witnesses? And and let me say in some sense, um, this is where... I believe God the Holy Spirit may wish to speak to us this evening, and and I've sort of rushed through uh, the previous, although it hasn't been too quick, has it, (laughs) Um, uh, to to get to this. Um, uh, The two witnesses uh, are the witnessing church, more specifically faithful Christians of every age who stand as Christians with Christ and for the gospel in the world, uh, with whom they are intrinsically opposed and in conflict, whether they know it and whether they understand the depth of that conflict or not. Uh, For the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God are and forever will be at odds with one another, guaranteed. In some points, it may not seem to be so very much at odds. But underneath, it's very much. In other places, it. Is very clearly at odds. Uh, these two witnesses, uh, there are two of them because God has always sent his people out in twos uh, by the testimony of two witnesses. The truth is to be known. And they're clothed in sackcloth because our message to the world is of necessity, uh, a message of repentance, followed by faith. They will prophesy with great power. What is this power? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And many will hate them for it. indeed, uh, today, there are many enemies of the gospel, and more with each passing year. But what do we read in verse seven? Revelation 11:7. Uh, let me read those words and refresh them to your attention. We read in verse seven, and when they had finished um, their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit to make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, um, (coughs) uh, the, the people of the earth and tribes and languages of the nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Uh, the gospel age is going to come to an end. Uh, the church, as a missionary organization, uh, will complete their their testimony. God has set a day when there will be no more gospel witness. The witnesses, the confessing church, is said to prophesy for 42 months, which represents time cut short. 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, times, time, and half a time. Those are all the same thing. They all add up. They're the same measure. Um, They all are half of seven years. And seven, remember, is the number of perfection cut short, you see. It's time cut short. Uh, This is the time of the final judgment when the preaching is over and the gospel is withdrawn. And the time of Christ's return has come. And and it came so fast. Um, And uh, it will come. It will be too late for men to be saved. It will be... It will be unexpected. It will be like a a thief in the night. This is time cut short when many are caught sleeping. Many are caught without their oil and will be tragically unprepared. Perhaps these numbers also suggest that the persecutions and difficulties that accompany them uh, these very last days before the return of our Lord will be cut short for the sake of God's people. Uh, even as our Lord Jesus promised in the gospel, saying, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Matthew 24, 22. The enemies of God, the enemies of the church, and the gospel here figuratively called uh, Sodom or Egypt, will so persecute the church that they appear, it appears to die, to disappear altogether. And they'll rejoice over that fact as they've rejoiced through the ages in countless small apparent victories when people ignorantly said, we did it, we destroyed the church. And uh, surely um, the expectation of the beast who, are, who arises from the pit in verse 7 to destroy these two witnesses, that was his expectation. Uh, that is that the testimony of the church would be destroyed. And, and we'll hear more of this beast in other cycles. He's represented uh, by many anti-Christian forces. He's represented by in many figures throughout modern and ancient history. Uh, uh, the former Soviet Union, uh, in ancient Japan, the days of the shoguns, uh, in the, the China of Mao and now of Xi, of Xi. Communist North Korea, many Muslim countries who rejoice as they think they're smothering the church. But they've always been wrong and they will be proved absolutely wrong on the last day after the three and a half days. Again, a relatively short period of time when in connection with the second coming, the church that is God's people are restored and raised up and resurrected in honor and power and influence. On that day, the world, frozen with fear and loathing, the last opportunity, the last chance to smirk and smile at the foolishness of the gospel and the weakness of Christ will be gone forever. And there will be no more hope for them at all. The church, still under the symbolism of the two witnesses, now hears this loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And thereupon the two witnesses, that is the church, ascends uh, to the heavens in a cloud of glory. Not the church alone in some sort of secret rapture, but for this final glorious moment of culmination, this is the end. We've got to the end again, you see. Uh, when all of, all of mankind, dead and alive, will be gathered at the judgment, which comes with the seventh trumpet. Revelation 11 only takes us to the sounding of the last trumpet, perhaps one and the same with the trumpet that we read about in 2 Thessalonians, which when it sounds, we will all be changed and made incorruptible, and time will be no more. Verse 11 and 15 of our text. And after three and a half days, the breath of life entered them, and they stood on their feet And great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from the heavens saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and so on. And so we come uh, again to the end. And so with these short verses, we again come to the end of a cycle. Uh, The history of redemption spread out before us in the sounding of seven trumpets. The church in its salvation, its suffering, and its happy ending. Other cycles will give greater measures of detail regarding heaven or other aspects. But by way of final application and conclusion, um, I'm reminded of a portion of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Now, this congregation has been spared because usually I talk a great deal about Pilgrim's Progress. And I'm a great fan of Pilgrim's Progress. and it, it, um, But, but I, I can't resist using it because um, it's so powerful and useful. Uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, um, Bunyan gives us this allegory of, of the Christian life, telling us the story about a, a man, Christian by name, who's passing through the world on his journey to heaven or the celestial city. Having been saved from his burden of sin at the cross, Christian meets many many obstacles and challenges along the way, together with some sweet moments of encouragement. Now, one great occurrence happens as Christian and his companion at the time, faithful by name, pass to the town of Vanity, where there is a great fair which continues day and night, day after day, year-round, called Vanity Fair. At that fair, which is a picture of the vain world, writes Bunyan, quote, all sorts of merchandise are sold, such as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures and delights of all sorts, as whores, bawds, wives, children, husbands, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. In short, all of the idols of the world, everything bad and good, Alike, which men have made into idols. In that fair, (coughs) the pilgrims find themselves sorely out of place. They had no time to stop and shop. They had no interest in the baubles of the world. They had no heart for the vanities that were the life and soul of the inhabitants of that city. Their very speech identified them, for they, they spoke the language of Canaan. And when they were asked, these pilgrims, what will you buy? The Christians replied, we buy the truth, which caused the inhabitants only to dislike them even more. In the end, they were arrested and tried and convicted and beaten and scorned, and one of them, faithful, was burned alive by the hateful world to which they bore faithful witness while only passing through. Now, here's my last point. Uh, You and I, brothers and sisters, are pilgrims on our way uh, to the same celestial city. We're traveling through Revelation 8 to 11. And the lesson is this: that you and I must clearly understand what ultimately our lives are all about, that there is this fundamental conflict in history between God and his enemies and between uh and between good and evil between Cain and Abel, between Jacob and Esau, between the children of God and the children of wrath. The conflict between two kingdoms, between two worlds and two principles still operative in the world in which we live. And the players of this drama must open their eyes, we must open our eyes to, to see this deadly dynamic and understand what's going on around us. Revelation 8 to 11 puts the spotlight on this conflict between the sons of God, the two witnesses, and the unregenerate children who are no friends of God in the gospel. Now listen to this. Revelation as a whole unapologetically, exposes the heart of the unregenerate man in ways that we might feel uncomfortable speaking of in this supposedly tolerant day and age. Uh, We might read about the pilgrims passing through Vanity Fair and, and think them a little too sharp and unnecessarily standoffish and puritanical. We might read through these chapters and think, well, this is all a little bit overblown, you know, all these thunders and and, and horrible things. And we might say to ourselves, this is overly dramatic. It's a little bit over exaggerated, isn't it? The world is, the world is not so bad, nor are we so very good that we should feel so out of place in this life as Pilgrims, Bunyan, uh, Bunyan's Pilgrims did. But you see, the book of Revelation, and I'm quoting Westminster professor Vern Poitras, does not allow this sort of thinking. It shows us the heart of darkness. It gives us a look, a hard look behind the obscuring curtain of civilization and and the moderating ploys that conceal our deepest alliances. It shows what's really there. It's like an X-ray. You've got all sorts of lovely clothes on, but when you stand behind the X-ray, it all comes there, what's really there. The book of Revelation starkly shows us what's really there. Um, uh, that uh, In Scripture, we're, we're told that there is just ultimately two camps. Those who are saved by grace and the gospel, who are regenerated and who confess Christ as Savior and Lord and love the day of his appearing. And those who serve the enemy, the devil, whether they know it or not, and who rejoice to see the discomfort and the death of the church, his people. It's one way or another. The lesson, Poitras again, is important in your own life. Look for the deadly conflict and persevere unflinchingly in witness and loyalty to Christ. In the lives of non-Christians, um, look beneath the veneer of pleasantries and see the deadly opposition that only divine power can st- <coughs> excuse me can stop. Uh, the purpose of the Book of Revelation is not to confuse us. It's not to uh, to provide a grist for theological debates or arguments about all these different things, uh, or even the script for some sort of dramatic best-selling novel or sell-out movie. Um, It's rather to open our eyes so that we might see the truth, so that we might see spiritual facts and realities that shape our world and which are often hidden from our dim eyes and dull hearts. Uh, or which we lightly dismiss. But these differences, these realities, even in heaven and hell, are not lightly treated or dismissed at all in the Bible, least of all the book of Revelation. This is a solemn text, and there's no getting around it. It positions us in a cosmic battle. May the Lord open our eyes and prepare us uh, for this life of realities of this world and certainties of the world, the certainty rather of the world to come. Let's pray. Lord our God, thank you for showing us, um, even in uh, these poetic manner, uh, Lord, these verities, these truths. We, we do see it. We do see, Lord, the difference between uh, your people and the people of the world. So, sometimes, Lord, it, it seems not so clear. Uh, But we know that there is a a great spiritual battle in which we are engaged and we see ourselves positioned in that and we love to name you as our Savior and and we love to know we are resting in you and resting in your joy and in your love for us. We pray for our witness to those about us that we would show them uh, the glories of Christ and the love of Christ and the mercy of Christ that they so badly need